This is episode 44 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to Men's Roundup 2008 with Gary Thomas. This is session one, Friday night. When I saw the schedule, I thought, they're going to need a stretch break before I get it. You don't need a stretch break after that. Maybe decaf or something, not a stretch break. That was incredible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for already showing up, as you do. Lord, I pray you would seize this weekend. I pray even tonight, Lord, you would stake your flag in the ground and say, this is mine. These men, they're mine. Their families, mine. Their futures, mine. Lord, take us all for your purpose. You are an active God. You are more than capable of this. And we give ourselves up to you. Thank you, Lord, for setting the stage. Pray now that you would feed us from the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was a young, struggling seminary student, my wife and I lived in a small, rundown home with just one daughter at the time. We only had one kid at the time. Shared a driveway with a single gal who had a cat named Remington. Remington sort of became the neighborhood cat. He would come over and my wife and daughter would pet him and occasionally feed him and play with him and whatnot. So one morning I'm getting ready to go to the library to do some studying. And as I'm pulling out of the shared driveway, right in front of the driveway on the street is the cat. Splayed out on the road, run over by a car or truck or something like that. I thought, well, can't just leave him out there like that. So I parked the car, went up to our neighbor, said, look, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I explained what happened. She came running out and started crying. That drew my wife and daughter's attention. So they came out and they started crying. It was really sad. So I'm practically crying, not to be honest, because I cared about a cat being dead. I'm more of a dog person myself. I think in, in many ways the world improved when a cat dies, but... But I'm trying to be a supportive husband, I'm trying to be a supportive father, a good friend, so I'm trying to empathize with them, and so they get, well, we need to have a funeral to send Remington out right, and again, Young wasn't sure about the theology of having a funeral, but I thought, if it makes them feel better, what can it hurt? So we have the funeral, they share some words, somebody shared, he's a very friendly cat, my dad said, yeah, always would let me pet him, somebody said, he's a very smart cat, and I had to hold my tongue, I'm thinking, how smart could he be, he got hit by a truck, I mean... (laughs) He's a cat, he could jump out of the way. Finally got the guy in the ground, okay? And I thought, with some degree of sensitivity, I could leave and go about my day. So they were all kind of going their way. My wife and daughter to our house, and neighbor to her house. I was just at the door, ready to touch the door handle, and I heard my neighbor scream. So I ran into her house, and she was white, pointing at her couch. There was Remington sitting on her couch. We'd buried the wrong cat. <laughs> same markings on the ears, same markings on the tail. Obviously a different cat. I just laughed because I'm trying to be the supportive husband, father, and friend, and it was all a farce. And I, I share this at the start of the weekend because I don't come to you in any way as a guy who's got it together telling you how to be a guy. Uh, I am growing every day. I, I loved the phrase... Uh, Not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. 
But there are two areas I want to look at tonight and tomorrow morning that really are the two greatest spiritual failings, I think, that men often face as men. Ones that I still struggle with to this day, but they really come to the heart of what it means. And the first one is what um, we could call the silence of Adam. I want to introduce you to Genesis chapter 3. It's a very familiar passage. You can open up your Bibles there if you want, if you have it. I, I don't want to read through it, though, because it's so familiar. I just want to retell it and, and, and hopefully make it sound a little more fresh. Very familiar passage. It's where sin entered the world. We know how God set things up. He gave instructions to Adam. Adam passed them on to Eve. And then in Genesis 3, we open up with this scene where Satan, as a serpent, is tempting Eve, trying to get her to go against what God had commanded Adam. She starts to falter, and then she gives in. Sin enters the world at that moment. But then we're told something very key in verse 6 that also speaks to men. And here's what it says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, if we could bring that up, please. It says that after she took a bite that was forbidden, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Now I stress who was with her because this whole passage is opened up when we look at those words. What does this mean? It means Adam was at Eve's side the entire time she was being tempted. Now remember, Adam was the one that got the words directly from God. He had had to pass them off to Eve. She hadn't been created at that moment. And you might think if Adam had been a strong man, he would have spoken up. He was there when Satan was lying. He might have said, Satan, we don't want what you're selling. I was there when God spoke those words. You're twisting them. That's not what he meant. That's obviously not what he said. Get out of here. But he didn't. He stayed silent. Why? I have this theory that Adam got the words from God, but like a lot of us guys, he always wondered, but what if I did? Aren't we like, I mean, we grow up with that, right? As little kids. Yeah, I know I can't fly, but what if I put a cape? Uh, you know, I'll just put a towel around my back and jump out. Maybe I will. Or what if I put a firecracker in that wasp nest, right? And, and explode. Wouldn't that be cool? Because they'll, they'll all die, right? So we won't get stymied. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> now, God has used the male what if in a lot of powerful ways. There had to be a guy that said, what if I can sail around the world and I won't fall off? Took a lot of guts. Or some guy to say, what if I give somebody a little bit of a disease and build up antibodies and they won't get it? Took a lot of guts. To be willing to do it. But in this case, the what if on the male side was tragic. Adam saw Eve faltering. And instead of speaking up, he let her do it. And then when nothing seemed to happen, because consequences aren't always immediate, he had some too. Larry Crabb in his book, The Silence of Adam, says this. The silence of Adam is the beginning of every man's failure. From the rebellion of Cain to the impatience of Moses, from the weakness of Peter down to my failure yesterday to love my wife well. And it is a picture, a disturbing but revealing one of the nature of our failure. Since Adam, every man has had a natural inclination to remain silent 
when he should speak. Now contrast this passivity and silence of Adam with the active nature of the God in whose image we were created. Genesis chapter 1 has 39 active verbs describing the work of God alone in that one chapter. God creates, he speaks, forms a world out of nothing, takes chaos, brings order throughout all the scriptures. He rescues, he heals, he speaks, he warns, he builds up, he tears down. He's an active God and men made in his image bear this active mark. Throughout scripture, we see it in the heroes of scripture. I think of David. Growing up, it always kind of bugged me that David was called a man after God's own heart. When I think of how badly he messed up, an adulterer, murderer to cover it up, a proud, how does he get to be called a man after God's own heart? But Acts 13.22 tells us, it says that David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. Why? He will do everything I want him to do. God says, here's a man, if I have a battle to be fought, if I have a war to be won, here's a man I can send in, he'll get it done. I can count on him. We see the deity in Christ when he has this same attitude displayed in Genesis. John 17, 4, Jesus speaking to his heavenly father says, I have brought you glory on earth, father. How? By completing the work you gave me to do. You sent me here with the mission, I got it done. The Apostle Paul, you know, the stalwart of the New Testament, wrote so much of it, the apostle to the Gentiles. He said near the end of his life, in Acts 26, 19, speaking to a secular king, whatever else you may say about me, you may not like my hair, you may not like the way I dress, this much is true, I have not been disobedient to the vision given me from heaven. God gave me a task on the Damascus Road. I got it done. Whatever else you say, may say about me, I got it done. And James, the brother of Jesus, would say, this is how we should live our life. James 4, 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So when we look at the example of David and Jesus, the words in James, the example of Paul and Peter and the failure of Adam, we can come up with this. The biblical model of a godly man, however you define it, this may not be a full definition, but it must at least include this. The biblical model of a godly man is a passionately engaged man, empowered by God to influence the world. That's a godly man made in God's image, bearing God's image. It's a picture, I think, of D.L. Moody. Very famous evangelist, one of the most famous evangelists ever, had led tens of thousands of people to the Lord. But his most powerful sermon, I think, was preached on his deathbed. He had his sons gathered around his bed. He knew he was about to leave this earth. What are the last words a man like that wants to leave with his kids? Moody looked at his sons and he said this, If God be your partner, make your plans large. Sons, if God be your partner, make your plans large. When you have the full resources of heaven, when you have the Holy Spirit of God empowering you from within, don't settle for small aims. Don't limit yourself when you have all of heaven at your disposal. But this wasn't Adam. Adam was silent. 
Larry Crabb again. Adam then was a silent man, a passive man. Like many men in history, he was physically present but emotionally absent. God speaking brought creation out of chaos. Adam's silence brought chaos back to creation. God used language to establish relationship. Adam used silence to destroy relationship. Adam ruined paradise by failing to do something. Did you guys, he ruined paradise. How? By failing to do something. And so often, let me speak particularly to the Christian men here. We like to define ourselves as pretty good husbands and pretty good fathers because we say, look, I, I don't come home drunk. I've never put the family's grocery money on red at the roulette. Well, I've never beat up my wife. I've never hit my kids inappropriately. But Adam's problem wasn't what he did. His, his, his sin was also in what he didn't do. His failure to be actively engaged is what ruined paradise. The same thing can happen in our families. You may not be actively abusing your family, but our silence can wound our family. It begins certainly with male abandonment. When you look at the social cost of male abandonment, it is staggering. Look at these statistics real quickly. Daughters of single parents without dads are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers, 111% more likely to have children as teenagers, 164% more likely to have a premarital birth, and 92% more likely to have their own divorce. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth sitting in prison, 85% grew up without a dad. Kids without a dad are twice as likely to drop out of high school. The consequences of removing a dad and filling that home with his silence are devastating. Now, I know a lot of you guys would say, I'd never abandon my home physically like that. But it's possible to be in a home and still be passive in a home. I faced this throughout my life. I know there's one time... When our when kids were quite a bit younger, we, did, we, we were pretty intentional about doing some good family stuff together. We lived in the Washington, D.C. area. We'd go to parades. We'd do fun things. We'd go out and do all of that. But as they started to get into their early teen years, and I was launching a business for the first time, they started getting all these invitations from friends, and I really started to get passive and lazy. I wasn't planning things for the weekend. I was just, my wife planned something great. If not, I just let it go by. And so my kids would come up to me on Thursday or Friday and say, hey, Dad, I got invited to go out to Riley's Lake House, or Caitlin wants to go do this. I say, sure, because it's hard to say no to their something with my nothing. And now as I look, I have my oldest daughter, third year in college, my son just entering college this year, and then one daughter still at home. And I just, whether it was understandable exhaustion from trying to get this business going, or whether it was just confusion, it doesn't really matter. Those were lost times because of my passivity. I just let them slip through my hands. And I regret that today. What, what keeps us passive? Often, it's not intentional sin. We don't know what to do. And as men, we want to feel competent. Isn't that true? What, what does a guy hate more than feeling incompetent? We flee that. We don't take up some sports because we think we'll look like fools. We know it'd be fun if we're good, but we can't bear the thought of not being competent for a while. 
We, we might have our job down. We go to work. We feel like I can do what they ask me to do at work. Some of you rare lucky few know that you can look pretty good on a golf course. You know, I, most days you, you've got it down. Some of you, you can hunt. You can wear a microphone without it falling off. <laughs> You can fish. You, you've got that down. You know how to do it. But then we go into the family situation and we get into these situations where we have no training for. Nobody prepared me. Trying to raise a 13-year-old daughter who really feels like the world is ending because she can't find her right airbrush. And, and the whole family is chaos. If she doesn't find it, the world comes to an end. So I think I find it. Here's your hairbrush. That's not the right one. I go, what's the right one? The one that makes my hair look good. I said, I don't understand how a hairbrush makes your hair look good. Of course not. You don't have any hair. And I'm like, well, okay, that's fair, you know. Or when I was a young husband and my wife would be furious with me in the morning because of how, how I'd acted the night before in her dreams. <laughs> and you have that? And she's just so I just can't believe you said that. And I said, I didn't. It felt like you did. And I'm like, I'm sorry? I mean, I... <laughs> and, and so we get into where we have no training. We, we just want to run back to where we feel competent. Because we don't like feeling stupid. Or we get into those embarrassing situations. Here's where a lot of guys... Just count on passivity and pass it off to the moms in a way we shouldn't. When I remember dropping my kids off at high school, I see so many young women walking into the school almost dressed. You know what I'm talking about? Apparently they were in such a rush to get to school on time, they forgot to finish the job. And when I see a young woman like that, I'm not judging her. What's going through my mind is what another pastor says. I think there goes an unfathered girl. There goes an unfa a young woman who doesn't have a man in her life taking her aside saying, Honey, here's what you're saying about yourself when you go to school like that. Here's what you're doing to, to boys. Here, here's, here's why that shouldn't happen. But we don't want to get in there because we know there might be a fight. They might say something bitter. And like cowards, we might be king of the forest at work, on the golf course, sitting in the deer blind, but we become cowards to 14 or 15-year-old girls' wrath, and we say nothing. I was in a church one time. There was a family down below me, mother, father, daughter, and a boyfriend. And in the middle of church, he was all over her. I was so distracted, I wanted to stop preaching and sit in between them, almost, just to finish my sermon from there. It was so distracting, because I'm thinking, it doesn't take a big imagination to wonder if that's what they're doing in church, what happens when they go home. So I'm thinking, i got to talk to this dad, what's going on? So I pull him aside and I bring it up, he goes, yeah, I know, but she's 17, what are you, you going to do? Give me some duct tape and plywood. I'll show you what I can do. I mean... <laughs> but here's where it stops being funny. This is true. A year later, I'm talking to the pastor of that church. That young woman was pregnant outside of marriage. What do you do? Silence is never the right choice.
Think of something, but don't just sit there. And that means we can't let feelings of incompetence or not knowing what to do stop us. Silence is usually, in almost every situation, the wrong choice. Larry Crabb again. I suggest that a man, in fact, is most manly when he admits, I don't know what to do in this situation, but I know it's important that I get involved and do something. I will therefore envision what God may want to see happen in this person's life or in this circumstance, and I will move toward that vision with whatever wisdom and power God supplies me. A manly man moves even when there are no recipes. I mean, I've been there's some family situation. You're going into a kid's bedroom. You know you're going to have a conversation. You're sort of like, I'm going in, Lord. I mean, you don't know what you're going to say. You don't know what you're going to do, but it's like, i got to bring it up. I love to see one of my favorite books and movies is, um, I just forgot the title. <laughs> Mel Gibson was in it. We were soldiers once and young. Mel Gibson just does an incredible job playing this. And there's this one time, it was a true story in Idrang in the Vietnam, one of the first major conflicts where they got, one group got separated. It was just a bitter fight. And there's this one scene where the American forces are overrun. And you see Mel Gibson, he plays this so well. He gets up, he looks here, and the forces are overrun. He goes this way, they're overrun. He, he, he just covers the perimeter. He sees how they're broken through. And he says to his radio guy, broken arrow. That's to say that again, sir. He says, broken arrow. Now, broken arrow is one of the most severe commands that a commander like that in conflict can give. What it means is that American forces have been overrun. They're going to bring the full firepower from the Air Force to bear on that situation. And some American soldiers will be killed as they try to start a new perimeter. But they have to sacrifice some to save a few. And he's not crying. He's not saying, God, why am I in this situation? Why do I have to call it? It's just, this is what's this happening here. This is what's happening. This is it. And a guy questions, are you sure? Yeah, broken arrow. Sometimes it feels like that at home. We may, make, we may feel like we're going to make things worse. We may not. The consequences are severe, but we have to move forward. God lets us go into those situations. And sometimes even the most basic situations in life bring up those feelings. Remember, I already referred to starting out, I became self-employed in 1995 as a writer and speaker. I've been doing it ever since. It was in June of 1995, but I remember early on when my books alone couldn't come close to feeding my family, I would just take these odd jobs on the side just to try to keep the mortgage paid and try to keep food on the family. I took 1 Timothy 5.8 very seriously as a guy. It says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I thought, you know what, I can't let my dreams sacrifice my family. If I believe God has called me to do this, and I did, I, I've got to work twice as hard to make sure they're taken care of. And so I got a job working with this guy who would set up book tables at these huge conventions all around the country. And he'd fly me in, and I'd set up the book table Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It would be literally 16, 17, sometimes 18-hour days. These conventions would be open till late at night or open up early in the morning. I had to be there. And I hardly got paid at all. It would often be on just a commission or something. So I might come home with a $300 check, which is hardly anything for that many hours. But it was $300 that we needed. 
I remember after months of this, riding in the week and then doing these conventions often on the weekend, I, I was just so exhausted and I was confused because I knew God had called me to this, but it was ten times as hard as I thought it would be. I remember being at O'Hare. It was late, a light flight out. I was just so tired. And there was this young couple coming back from someplace warm. I mean, they had shorts. They were tanned. They were laughing. They were happy. I couldn't remember the last time I had laughed or felt like I could go on a vacation. And what made it so difficult is I knew I was going to have to wake up early the next morning. Couldn't afford to take a day off. It's not that I didn't believe in a Sabbath, but my family needed to eat. I was the only source of income. And something inside me broke. I'm not a big crier. I remember my son was 14. He said he had never seen me cry. But he wasn't with me that night at O'Hare Airport. Because I finally, I just broke. I remember going into the men's room, shutting the stall, and just saying, Lord, can't you please help me? I know you've called me to this. Why would you leave me to be crushed like this? I, I was expecting a phone call from my wife saying, you know, long lost uncle, you never knew died, we got $50,000, you know? You can take a week off. Or I, I was vacuuming under the couch this morning, I found a $100,000 bill, you know, we're, we're gonna be okay. <laughs> Didn't happen. No long lost uncle died, didn't find anything under the couch. But what did happen is that God gave me the strength to wake up the next morning on about six hours of sleep. And he gave me the strength to wake up on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And as I look back at that now, 15 years later almost, I think at that moment I was a boy asking to be rescued. And God was saying, I want to make you a man who can rescue and reach out to others. And I, I say that because I know there are probably a lot of guys in this situation. You feel like you are being crushed in your marriage, in the responsibilities of providing, in your parenting, that you're saying no to everything, or you're facing a vocational challenge that you know is bigger than you are right now. God's intention is not to crush you, but to shape you. Now, your spiritual enemy, Satan, is lying to you tonight and telling you as you are coming here that God is angry at you or he's bitter and look at how mean he is, that he is crushing you. It is to shape you. And if he's to pull you out of that prematurely, you won't be the man you need to be for the task he's laying out for you. The task like he laid out a task for Paul. The task that Jesus was faithful to complete. The task that Peter got done. And David, the task that God has for you. So being a godly man not only means we have to become, in one sense, tough men. It also follows that we have to raise tough men. We've got to raise tough men. That sounds politically correct to talk about this these days, about how boys are supposed to behave. And we'll often face this with our wives, to be honest. I remember when Graham was playing t-ball. He's about seven years old. We were in Virginia. T-ball was a serious sport. I know out in Washington and Oregon, at least in Washington, they don't keep score because it's supposed to destroy kids' self-esteem. Uh, they're not quite so enlightened in Virginia at that time. We actually were in a t-ball championship game. They played championship and not everybody got to, I mean, they, 
So it was pretty big business there because you could play year-round. The weather was better. Graham was a second baseman, and he was one of the players that actually tried to catch the ball. You know, that's one of the problems with T-ball is this, they're not all in it. And, but, but he was pretty much in there. So he was playing second base. The other batter got up from the opposing team, hit a line drive. You don't see a lot of those. Kind of caught everybody by surprise. Graham put his mitt up to catch it, missed his mitt, hit him on the head, and dropped him like that. I mean, he was just... The whole stands... I'm, I'm down with the coach, but I hear my wife at the top of this bleacher sucking in about five liters of auctions. Just, <gasps> I, mean, I run out, I see Graham. I mean, I could see it's already a huge knot is forming. I thought, man, this is, this is going to be big. But, I, buddy, you okay? Are you right? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. We kind of shake him up, dust him off. Coach says, here, um, I, I'll take you out. We'll, we'll put Timmy in, and you can take a great. No, Timmy's going to let the balls go by. We can win this game. It was close. He goes, I, I want to stay in. I remember thinking, I, I got a tough one. Yeah, I was so. <laughs> you, you don't know. You know, they're four, five, six. You, you don't. I think, yeah, this is so cool. I mean, I was feeling so great about life. I, this is so cool. And, and I turn around, I'm walking toward the bleed. I'm feeling so good about everything until my wife catches my eyes. Yeah, husbands know what I'm talking about. You know how your wives have these abilities to preach a sermon without opening up their mouth? I mean, they're just... And, and I know she's thinking, my son just got hit in the head with a baseball, and you're leaving him out there? What if he has a concussion? What, I mean, how, how, what, what if he's just slow? He get, is, have you lost your mind? I, I mean, I know she's thinking there are three despicable men in the history of the world... Judas Iscariot, Adolf Hitler, and my husband. That's pretty much what her look is telling me. So I stayed down with the coach for the rest of the game. Not a fool. Well, sometimes I am. After the game, we had a discussion. <laughs> and, and it finally went like this. I looked at her and I said, Honey, this isn't a world in which weak men do well. She said, Gary, he's a boy. I said, yeah, he's a boy. He's a boy. And I got to raise him to be one. I, I couldn't be passive in that situation. My best friend has challenged me in this regard. He's full-blooded Japanese, just a, a great guy, strong man. He's known for being pretty forceful with his kids. And we actually, when Graham got older, we moved to Washington State. We coached a little league team together. And his son was pitching one time. The bases were loaded. It was a tied game. And his son walked a runner in. Everybody got silent because they wanted to see what Rob was going to do. Rob calls timeout, walks out to the mound. I was the first base coach, so I walk out too because I just want to hear what Rob's going to say. <laughs> I want the first... And I remember saying, Bud, you and I both know that was a terrible pitch. That was a really bad choice. And you can feel bad about it in 45 minutes. He goes, but you can't now, because we need to get this next guy out. You can't afford to feel bad about it now. You've got to put it behind you. So Michael, he puts the ball in Michael's mitt, suck it up, and get this guy out. And Michael did. Pitch, pitch brilliantly. Guys, as hard as it is, sometimes we have to, even if our wives are having an issue with this, we need to look at our kids sometimes and say, I know this is tough. I know you're scared. 
I know you may not feel like you're up to this, but suck it up and get this done. Now, that has to be in a relationship of nurturing and encouragement where they know we're behind them. But I remember having a, I had a conversation with my kids just two days ago where they're facing a real legitimate, objective, tough issue. And I said, yeah, it's tough. I'm affirming that from any perspective. That's really tough. But there's no other way out. You're going to have to face this. What I pray for my son is what was said of William Wilberforce. He was tender, but not soft. You don't want to be harsh, but he can't be soft. So men, for those of you who are husbands or fathers, this begins at home. What does it mean for fathers? The silence of Adam. We want to get rid of Do you know your children and their friends? What is the spiritual temperature of their... What's their greatest temptations? If you don't know, how are you praying for them? What are their strengths? What do you see that you really want to capitalize on and build? If you're a husband... Are you pursuing your wife? I think this is one of the greatest sins, even since, even for Christian men, we get these wonderful women to marry us, and then we get lost in our vocation and our hobbies. We check out. We stop pursuing them. We're not moving forward in relationships. What are they going to do? Think they're going to leave us? And we have turned our wives away with our passivity. Yeah, we're never mean to them. We don't raise our voices, but we also never sincerely ask them, how was your day? I'm, I'm a guy like you. I know what it's like. I, I've never met a guy who works 9 or 10 hours a day, has a 45-minute commute, and on that commute home thinks, what I really need is a good 45-minute talk with my wife. You know, just share my feelings and relive that day. That's not us. But our wives need to be brought back into our world. When is the last time you prayed for your wife or even more difficult with her? Do you guys have any idea what would happen with your wives if you would simply pray with them or over them? If you've never done that, you might be shocked at how much that moves them. And I've met guys, they act like they've got all the bravado, they've got all the stuff. They can bow hunt an elk but they're too afraid to pray with their wife. Single men, those of you who aren't married, your call right now in this decade is to protect your ability to influence. In fact, if you're 16 to 28, why don't you raise your hand if you're in that decade, all right? So I want you to know for the next few years, I'm, I'm talking to you. You're in what I call the decisive decade. I know that's 12 years, but decisive decade just sounds a whole lot better, so just work with me. <laughs> I, I'm serious. It is a key foundational decade because here's what's happening. You're going to make, when you think about it, the most major decisions of your life, you'll probably decide who you marry. You're going to decide the place that God has in your life. You're going to set yourself up vocationally or create roadblocks that you'll spend the rest of your life trying to get away from. You will create health habits that will give you long life or will take perhaps decades off your life with addictions or habits that are destructive. And here's what's going on in your life right now, all right? There's a lot of pressure in this decade because you're being tested, you're being prodded, you're having to grow from being a boy to being a man and everybody wants something from you and you're facing these situations that feel overwhelming and here's what Satan wants to do right at the start of your life. He wants you to respond to pressure with passivity. He wants you to go to sleep 
until you wake up in your 30s. That's what he does. Don't really think about your place in this world or how you can spread your influence. Just, just try to become nationally ranked in Halo 3. You know, it's a great thing, right? Don't, don't find a godly woman because Satan knows the incredible impact a godly woman can have on a man's life. Just make dating all about recreation. Just, it's just did you have a good time? Not as a character something that you could really do something with. In fact, maybe you could see how far you could get on the next day. Don't really try to discern your gifts and understand your calling. Just, it doesn't really matter what you do. You get high, you get drunk, you get wasted. As long as you can go through that decade without any intentional effort at all, Satan will feel like he's won. Even if you're a Christian, he knows he's lost you. He doesn't want you to take anybody with you. He wants to make the rest of your life an obstacle that you have to overcome. And a lot of men here know they have been boldly facing that challenge and they would be the first ones to speak to you. Don't create the hurdles for your midlife that I've created by being passive in that decade. Be engaged. The choices you're making right now are creating a platform for influence or a wall that you're going to have to scale. Here's what I want to say. As you mature, the nature of your battles need to, needs to become more noble. The, the thing most, just every young man's face is, is lust. Well, get used to it, all right? You're going to be facing it for a long time. But, but the problem with lust is it's such a small-minded temptation. Because at best, if you overcome, all you've done is not do something. I didn't lust today. But good for you. But here's a far more noble challenge. But did you encourage somebody? Did you speak up and defend somebody? Did you instruct? Were your gifts used? That's a better struggle to be involved. Going on the offenses like that. I remember with my son a year and a half ago. He was a junior in high school. He'd made a lot of good choices. It might sound weird to say a guy can be in awe of his son, but, but I am with mine. We were walking on his campus. It was his first choice where he wanted to go, a pretty prestigious school. I remember saying to him, Bud, you can go here if you want. Now, I didn't really have the right to say it because it was a tough school to get into. I couldn't really, but you made some good choices because I could just see his eyes. Look, this is really where I want to go. And he got in. He's enjoying that this fall. He took advantage of that time. Now, for a lot of you guys, it's never... You, you, you're never going to be scholars. And that's okay. There are so many ways to influence the world. Maybe you're an athlete. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of athletes. I've spoken to a lot of professional athletes. I just, when I was in Houston, I got to do a whole thing with the Houston Astro wives. Anything better than getting to talk to the Houston Astros is talking to their wives. But my wife was with me, all right? But just seeing the influence they have in their communities, it's enormous. But if you think that might be what God's calling you to, you need to know only one out of 16,000 of you will ever become a professional athlete. Are you willing to outwork 15,999 other guys to get there? Maybe you're not a scholar, you're not an athlete, maybe you're a creative type. You're going to do the musical thing. Or the creative. Great. 
But it doesn't just happen. You talk to anybody who is broken through and there are stories of hard, persevering work from their teens in almost every case. I've read a lot of musical biographies. I don't have any musical ability at all, but I just, I, I, I love good music. I remember reading the biographies of the Beatles and we always laugh you know, about the record company that passed up on the Beatles. But there's a good reason that record company didn't sign the Beatles because when they were playing, they weren't very good. It wasn't until they went to Hamburg and they were playing nine to 10 hours a day for months on end till they created a sound that anybody would pay for. Remember reading U2 by U2. Bono talked about their challenge early on as a band was that their drummer Larry and their bassist Adam couldn't keep time. <laughs> When you think you're starting a punk rock band and your drummer and your bassist have a difficult time keeping time, you got some issues, right? But I want you to listen to something. that one good musical thing did come out of the 80s, by the way, but besides that, they worked it out, all right? They worked it out, and it wasn't from tens of hours, it wasn't hundreds, it was thousands of hours where they said, God has given us a gift, and Bono has used that platform and influence to say, we're going to rid Africa of extreme poverty in this generation, and what he's done with his one campaign is incredible, but it didn't happen from being passive. He shattered the walls that stood in their way. And you grow up and you can start to resent your parents because they seem like they're so fearful of your future for good reason. But let me tell someone else who's fearful. Satan, your enemy, because he knows what one man, empowered by God, operating with the wisdom of God, with the vision of God, they, he knows what one man can do. He doesn't want you to become that man. Your call in this decade, be that man. Be that man. Let me end with this. I know it's been a long day. Let me cut it here. I love reading military history. Never been in the military, but there's just something about military history that just shows human nature so well. And there's this one story that's really riveting. Best I can tell it's true. It's from World War I, which was a very difficult war to fight in. Not that there's ever an easy war to fight in, but what made World War I so difficult is that it was trench warfare. The American forces dug their trench a couple hundred yards away. The German forces would have their trench. And you would live in that ditch for weeks on end. It's where you ate, it's where you slept, it's where you used the toilet. Mind-numbingly boring. I mean, you could just imagine that walls of dirt, that's all you saw every day. But then the boredom would be broken up by sheer terror because occasionally your commanding officer would say, it's time for you now to attack the other side. You're above ground, they're below ground, so it tended to be a wholesale slaughter. So you had this psychological reality that just ripped men's psyche into absolute boredom or sheer panic and terror. And two young American soldiers became really fast friends in this frenzied war. Talked about the girls they'd left behind, the dreams they wanted to do when they got back to the States. 
And then in one battle, they were separated. And then the order came back, always seemed to be this way. After a certain amount had died, they'd say, come back. And so they retreated. And the friend's looking around for his buddy, can't find him anywhere, starts to panic, running up and down the ditch, calling out, has anybody seen him? Another soldier finally speaks up and says, yeah, he was hit. He's 50 yards out that way. Without even thinking, the soldier said, I'm going out to get him. But the commanding officer was right there and said, absolutely not, Private. We've lost enough men already. It's a suicide mission for you to go out there. We'll get the wounded and the dead under cover of darkness. So the soldier just waited until the commanding officer's back was turned, crawled out toward his friend. He's one of the few moving targets above ground, so snipers are starting to hone in on him. So he's having to hug this ground, and I don't want to get too explicit here, but it was a messy. I mean, guys had been shot in two with shrapnel and machine gun fire. He is climbing through that muck and gore, the worst thing you could imagine when it's human muck and gore. But he's got to hug the ground, finds his buddy, turns him over. They have just a minute together. He drags him back, but his friend had been mortally wounded and he died on the journey back into the ditch. So he drags a corpse into the trench and the, the commanding officer is there, furious that his order had been disobeyed, gets right in the private's face. Tell me, private, was it worth it for you to risk your life to bring back a dead man that we could have gotten under cover of darkness? Soldier shocked his officer by saying, absolutely, sir, it was worth it. He said, what could possibly make it worth it for you to risk your life like that? Soldier said, sir, when I turned him over, he looked up at me and the only thing he said was, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. Husbands, that's what every wife wants to know. Things are going to get mucky. They're going to get gory. Are you going to keep coming for her? It's what every son, it's what every daughter wants to know. I may make things really tough for you. I may tell you I hate you. I may act like I resent you. And for a moment I will. But I need you to come and direct me and correct me and protect me. Mark Driscoll told me of how he knew a young girl who would take her boyfriends into her bedroom. And her dad knew. And she resented him that he never knocked on the door. She would have said, I hate you if he did. But as an adult, she resents it. He didn't speak up. Boys want to be noticed. Boys want to be appreciated. Men Men find their fulfillment knowing they're counted on. That's what we like. Shunning the passivity and silence of Adam to be active men made in the image of an active God. Let's pray. Father, the only reason we can dare to bring up some of these heart-wrenching truths and feel like we are laid bare and naked before you is that your grace resides in this room. Your servants are here. You don't speak conviction, Lord, without also offering forgiveness and the power to change so we can be honest with our failures because you are generous with your provision. You are generous with your grace. 
thank you, Lord, where you brought conviction. I pray we wouldn't run from that. I pray we'd be willing to sit to let you really speak into our hearts what needs to change, where we've been silent, where we haven't spoken up, a friend that we really know we need to say something to, a, a spouse or a child that we have stayed silent only out of cowardice. Lord, let us pursue our wives, our children, our calling, and you in a way that honors you. You are our partner, God. Let our plans be sufficiently large, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.